0: This is an ABC podcast. Good morning, everyone. My name is Eva Howens and I am the CEO of Fairphone. I've heard in many different variations over and over what Fairphone is trying to do. That's impossible. That's too hard. And I'm it didn't
1: have all the techno-utopian today, razzmatazz that iPhone launchers always impossible. have, it was far more laid back. But nevertheless, the Fairphone 4 is on the market.
0: So, today is a big day for us, not only because we want to introduce you to our next step towards Fair Electronics, but also because this is another chance for us to demonstrate that things can be different, that the system needs positive disruption.
2: So, we're
1: Fairphone is a Dutch social enterprise company with a simple idea to provide a smartphone that ethically-minded customers don't need to feel embarrassed about, one that can be repaired or updated rather than discarded when upgraded. And it's built from materials the company says have been ethically sourced. (music) Ethics, avoiding unnecessary waste, and the concept of fair tech. That's the core of our program today. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense.
3: So, I'm John Porter, I'm a news reporter at The Verge website. I think the Fairphone 4 is a really interesting device. From front to back, this thing is designed to be as as sustainable and eco-friendly as possible. That kind of starts from the materials it's made out of, you know, there's fair trade gold, there's responsibly sourced tungsten, recycled tin, recycled plastics. And then once you have the phone in your hand, you'll notice it kind of, it doesn't look like a modern phone. It maybe looks a little bit less premium, I would say, but you turn it over, you can take off the back without any screws that that just comes off. Just you kind of get a fingernail underneath the back of it and you can take it off. And then inside, you'll just see normal Phillips head screws holding this whole thing together. So the idea is that when things inevitably go wrong with this phone, because things do break with phones, it's, comparatively incredibly easy just to take a a, a normal screwdriver and just replace these components yourself. And then Fairphone sells these, they used to kind of call them modules, now they kind of call them spare parts, and you could just buy them yourself from their website. And so basically, the hope is that most people will be able to keep a Fairphone 4 going for much longer than a comparative iPhone. And by some estimates, that's
1: not much more than three or so years. Now we covered the arrival of the Fairphone way back when the company first got started, and according to John Porter, its evolution
3: has been considerable. Honestly, the Fairphone 4 is kind of unrecognisable compared to the Fairphone 3, which had these these really old-fashioned top and bottom bezels. It kind of it it felt like a device from maybe half a decade ago. The Fairphone 4 feels a lot more modern; just looks like another phone, and I I think that's a huge win for Fairphone, really. And
1: what about its performance?
3: (sighs) It's tricky. I think for the price you're paying, it doesn't compete incredibly well with a phone of exactly the same price point. I would estimate you're paying around a 200 euro premium over another similar phone for those sustainability credentials, which is a shame. You know, when you look at other products that are trying to be more sustainable, whether that's something like free range meat or sustainably produced clothing, those products are more expensive, but they have the advantage of also being better in a lot of ways than an equivalent product that's not been sustainably produced. I think a lot of people would argue that free-range meat, for example, just tastes better than non-free-range meat. And so as well as being more ethical, it's also just a better product. And I think the problem that Fairphone has is that the phone inevitably is more expensive because they're paying a better price to factory workers, for example, to produce this thing. But rather than making it a better device, it kind of pushes it into a higher price bracket where there are just more premium phones that it has to compete against, which unfortunately does feel like a very unfair situation for Fairphone to to be in. But yes, that does kind of inevitably mean that you're paying the same price for kind of a lower spec device, I think. So if you're the kind of person that really wants to get every last bit of use out of a device, and the idea of, of upgrading just for the sake of it doesn't appeal to you, I think that's the kind of person that Fairphone is targeting. Many people, though, do like to
1: upgrade, don't they? Is that something they they really are always going to fight against?
3: It is definitely a problem. It's tricky from my perspective, because obviously I'm in this industry, you know, I'm surrounded by colleagues every single day that are incredibly excited (laughs) by the latest and greatest technology. And I think there will always be that customer out there that is just interested in technology. And, and I, I don't think that's a, that's a bad thing in the slightest. But I think there is, you know, a sizable, probably a majority of people out there at this point that kind of recognize that your average smartphone release today is only incrementally better than the average smartphone released a couple of years ago. And I think if current trends continue, that, that there is going to be this leveling out and, you know, the improvements year on year will get more and more incremental.
1: They've decided not to launch the Fairphone 4 in the United States, only in Europe. Is that significant?
3: Globally, I think it's very significant. The United States is a very tricky market for selling phones. And it's it's been remarked a lot of times that it's effectively a duopoly between Apple and Samsung. And to be honest, even Samsung, you you look at the the list of the top selling phones in the US every year, and it's, it's it's really, really dominated by Apple. There are a lot of reasons for that. I think one of them is the US carriers are really outsized influence. And so the idea of selling a phone in the US is as much about having a good business relationship with the carriers as it is with just... Just being able to produce a phone that the people want. It's a big issue globally if their phone can't sell there. But equally, I, I think they've picked their battles. They're a, a company based in the Netherlands that they're focusing on the European market, which arguably is a market they understand a lot better. And so I think for them, if they can get Europe right, that's probably a more achievable goal in the short term. John Porter from The Verge. <laughs>
1: The tussle that many people face between simply upgrading to a new device or trying to repair the one they already have is complicated, frustrated, by the marketing and manufacturing process called planned obsolescence. It's a business strategy that favours disposability in order to maximise the potential for future sales. Kyle Weens, CEO of the activist website iFixit.
2: If you sell me a thing, I should be able to do what I want with the thing. You sold it to me. Uh, and oftentimes it feels like manufacturers want to dictate what we can do with the things that we've bought. If they wanted to limit what we could do with our things, they shouldn't have sold it to us in the first place. So absolutely, this is a, a matter of equity. I, it's I bought it. It's mine. Let me do what I want with it.
1: When did things start to become difficult in terms of being able to fix the products that you buy?
2: This has been getting incrementally worse. This is kind of like the frog boiling in the pot of water. It's just like the temperature has continued to get hotter slowly over time. Go back 40 years ago and we had TV repair shops in every neighborhood. Those repair shops disappeared in the 90s, but then there were camera repair shops and you could go locally and you could get a camera fixed. Those repair shops all disappeared about 10 years ago. Now we have cell phone repair shops, but we're seeing manufacturers like Apple starting to encroach and take measures to eliminate that competition as well.
1: And at the core of this is that idea of product obsolescence, isn't it?
2: Uh, Absolutely. They have us on the treadmill of buying new things from them over and over and over again. And just like you've seen planned obsolescence where the light bulb cartels are figuring out how to make light bulbs wear out faster, we see this with other products. I think the biggest example that you see of this kind of treadmill effect is with the batteries in our smartphones. The battery in your phone is designed to last 500 uses, and then we're out. And the manufacturers, these major cell phone manufacturers, are not selling batteries. So This is the equivalent of selling a car with tires that you can't replace. We would never put up with that with a car, but somehow we do with our smartphones.
1: There's a cost to customers, to consumers from this, but there's also a very significant cost to the environment, isn't there?
2: Oh, it, it's huge. It takes over 500 pounds of raw material dug out of the earth to make a smartphone. Uh, and so when you think about the you know, three or four phones that you have sitting in your drawer, if you think about that instead, there's 500 pounds of material each. And there's a huge amount of energy expended, carbon emitted in the process of making these. Most of the The manufacturing of these products is in China, and the power that feeds those factories is coal-fired power. And so, yeah, there's a significant climate and environmental cost to manufacturing these products. The solution is simple, though. It's just like, let's just make less. Let's use the ones that we have longer. We have a a fun stat. If every American were to hang on to their phone just a year longer, it would be the equivalent of taking 600,000 cars off the road.
1: And while that's an unlikely scenario anytime soon, according to Kyle Weems, community attitudes have started to shift. And that in turn is beginning to have some effect on corporations.
2: So up until now, I'd say the companies have been a pretty concerted wall saying, no, we're making so much money on this. We're not going to change. But the pushback has gotten to the point where we are starting to see cracks in that wall. Just last week, Microsoft announced that they were going to revisit their strategy. They've had products with batteries glued in that weren't replaceable. And now Microsoft is saying that they're going to work on starting to make parts and tools available. That's the first big major manufacturer, and I'm I'm optimistic that we're going to see more come on board. And what about
1: legislation and regulation?
2: There has been a groundswell of political movement on this. You've seen in the U.S., you have the Biden administration issued an executive order supporting right to repair. You have the Federal Trade Commission looking into this. Twenty-seven different U.S. states introduced right to repair legislation this year. Legislation has been introduced in Canada. The European Commission has integrated right to repair into their circular economy strategy. In Australia, the Productivity Commission has been looking into this. So you are seeing a groundswell of, of momentum for this around the world.
1: But as you say, there's an entrenched view, or there has been at least, with the, the companies. We're not just talking about the technology companies, are we? The Microsofts and the Apples of the world.
2: No, we see this across the board in many industries. There are healthcare equipment companies who are preventing hospitals from repairing their own equipment because they want to sign the hospitals up for expensive extended service contracts. John Deere has been increasingly limiting farmers from repairing the equipment that they own. And as they make the tractors more computerized, they call it precision agriculture. But precision agriculture and more computers is an excuse for John Deere to take freedom away from farmers and get them on a subscription model where they're sending their data to the cloud and also kind of a subscription service model where only the John Deere technician can fix a tractor.
1: Is there an issue here of de-skilling? Do people after a while simply lose the ability, the the knowledge about how to repair, you know, even simple things?
2: That is something that I absolutely worry about is are we going to become a society where we don't know how to do things. The word consumer is a little bit depressing to me. We're just consuming things all day long. It feels a little bit maybe like the movie WALL-E uh, where we're just being pandered to. I'd like to get back to a world where we understand the things around us a little bit better, where we can use our things. Once you take something apart, it stops being magic. You know, I have a phone. It looks like a magic black rectangle. Well, I remove the screws on the bottom. I open it up and you can see, oh, actually, it's a series of components that I can understand. And I think that having Having a more aware and intelligent and engaged population will lead to a better society.
1: Kyle Weems from the website iFixit in California. As we know all too well on this program, regulators in Europe are much more hands-on when it comes to technology and the rights of consumers. One of their latest initiatives is a proposed law that would standardise a common charger for smartphones and other electronic devices. Sonia Gospornova is a spokesperson for the European Commission.
0: When proposing the legislative act, the Commission had two goals in mind. On the one hand, we wanted to address the inconvenience and consumer frustration that we had seen uh, in the last years because as many of us we have several electronic devices and with them come different chargers so we had to use different charging solutions for the various uh, electronic devices that we're using so on the one hand the inconvenience for consumers and on the other hand the electronic ways that the chargers as such are generating We have found that per year in the European Union, the chargers which are not used or disposed, they create around 11,000 tons of electronic waste. And then on the other hand, we have found that consumers are spending around 2.5 billion euro on chargers every year. So we wanted to address these two issues and because a voluntary solution did not work, we have taken a legal action.
1: So what devices are we talking about? Smartphones, but what else?
0: We're talking about six categories of uh, electronic devices. As you said, smartphones, also uh, portable speakers, tablets, digital cameras, headsets, and also handheld video game consoles. And we have chosen exactly those categories because they are very similar in the way and the functionality how they are being charged.
1: What's been the response from the industry so far?
0: So far, response has been positive in a way, because already now, currently, we see that there are three in the European market, there are three charging solutions. So we have reduced from three to one. So there was already a lot of progress done. And our solution, what was extremely important for the Commission, was to ensure that we take uh, future innovation and future development of uh, technologies into account. So in our legislative proposal, we have a very flexible mechanism that would allow us to take into account and to modify this legislation whenever this is deemed necessary.
1: And you don't think that this will stifle innovation? Because that is a suggestion that has been made by Apple in the past, when this has been raised.
0: Not at all, because on the one hand, as I said, we can take into account the development of technology. So this is something that could be easily done with the current existing legislative framework and also on the basis of the proposal that we have made. And then on the other hand, we have decided for a certain harmonized type of uh, charging solution that exists now, but we are closely monitoring the market and we will act if change is necessary. Also, in our uh, proposal for a legislative act, we have not covered the wireless charging solution because at this stage we don't see the need, we don't see fragmentation on the market. This is rather relatively young technology which will still develop. So, as I said, we are monitoring the market and innovation will be definitely taken into account whenever the need arises.
1: And is it correct to interpret this as a sign that the Commission doesn't believe that tech companies can self-regulate?
0: In general, the approach or the belief of the European Commission is that the market, the manufacturers are the best place to find a solution that works and is convenient for the market. So this is the baseline of our work in general, because we are in constant dialogue with the industry. So this is in general our approach. Industry is best place and knows best which are the most convenient solutions. But in cases where there are divergences, as in the case at hand, then we have the legislative means, we have tools uh, in our hands uh, where we can address a specific issue. And in this specific case, we thought it's uh, necessary because the voluntary approach that the Commission has uh, supported until now has not brought the desired solutions and we have acted. But it's always case by case.
1: Do you see interoperability as a bigger problem with the the technology sector? I mean, is this really, I mean, we're talking about standardising a phone charger, which to many people might seem like a a small thing, although, as you pointed out, the cost in terms of e-waste can be quite significant. But is there a bigger issue that will need to be addressed around interoperability?
0: Interoperability is very important because it ensures convenient solutions. It ensures easier solutions. So it's something which is a goal for the Commission, definitely. And interoperability standardization is part of that. And it's also an important part of the Commission's work and within the European single market. This uh, interoperability is one of the aims
1: of this proposal. And the benefits for customers, for people who use electronic devices, which is is basically all of us these days,
0: indeed absolutely and that's why this proposal is so important we believe that once the legislation is being applied then consumers would be able to save around 250 million euro because of the single charger that they would need they would not need to buy various chargers and then on the other hand we believe that this could bring around uh, 1000 tons of uh, reduction of electronic waste
1: sonja gospodanova from the european commission
3: You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead, and signposting the future.
2: I'm here today because I believe Facebook's
4: products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy.
3: For almost two years, Facebook product manager, Francis Haugen, had an insider's view of the social media giant.
2: The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes because they have
4: put their astronomical profits before people.
1: It may still be one of the world's biggest and most influential companies, but Facebook, it seems, can't take a trick. Accusations that it acts unethically and lacks a sense of fairness in dealing with its customers occur on a regular basis but the social media giant isn't the only tech firm that's coming under increasing scrutiny. Dr Margaret Mitchell is a computer scientist who's worked to try and instil ethical values into the technology sector. The work is ongoing, she says, and very much a challenge.
4: Part of it is because the people in power in a lot of tech companies and things like this are already sort of optimized to be people who could code very fast and, you know, launch things very quickly, which the other side of that is not being intentional and cautious and the kinds of deep thought you need about socio-technical issues when you're thinking about bias and fairness. So currently there's a lot of people in power working on AI who really just don't have the skill set for the sort of fairness understanding or just sort of ethics understanding more broadly and also have a bit of a bias, I'd say, not to care about it as much because their careers haven't been based on those kinds of issues.
1: Is there a sense in which the business model that has developed and which is now entrenched that it hasn't factored in? ethics and fairness. And, and so to kind of retrofit that in is seen by some of the, the heads of big tech as simply either too hard or, or not worth doing.
4: Yeah, I'd say that's exactly right. And I use the term retrofit as well. You know, structurally, these institutions are not built to have interdisciplinary and diverse input, you know, cross-org in order to do the kinds of ethical things you need to do. So they really haven't been structured in a way where there's communication flow or idea flow that could support ethical work. So it's uh, it's a really tricky place to be in with current tech companies. I think there needs to be a lot of modernization in how we develop AI. Old school, I would say, still stuck in the 90s and 2000s view of what technology is and, and really haven't been updated.
1: Now you previously worked for Google and you helped mm-hmm. develop their ethical AI team and, and led their ethical AI team. You were then mm-hmm. fired. What does that tell us? Not just about Google, but what does that tell us about attempts to try and build in an ethical team into this kind of organization?
4: So I should clarify that I I co-led it with uh, my colleague, Timnit Gabru, and the push against us was fairly manageable, I would say, until more recently. And really, it came down to who was listening to us. And so as our work got higher and higher in the hierarchy, our work was starting to hit people whose whole careers had been built around not thinking about these things. And I think that brought with it more and more sort of territorialism and hostility and things like this. It's sort of to this point about modernizing tech and modernizing tech companies. If a company is built with people in power, just sort of not having the skill set at all to appreciate what this work is, then it's going to be a real challenge. You're going to want to have people at the very top. So the CEO having a deep and nuanced understanding of what this kind of work is and why it's important. And without that, it's going to be, you know, hostility and hostility until an an explosion in my case and and Tim Neat's case where we were just sort of exploded out of the company for some pretty basic ethical things.
1: If you don't have that kind of leadership, is the the establishment of, you know, of an ethics team within an organisation, a tech organisation, is it really just window dressing?
4: No, I mean, as long as you have projects that you're involved with that People at the higher levels aren't that aware of or don't care about. I think it's quite possible. So they might use it as window dressing in PR sort of comms, but the people lower down who are actually doing the work are generally very, very serious about it and will forego promotions and high performance scores in order to work on something that's meaningful and impactful to them. That was definitely the case at Google. We all, you know, had slower promotional velocity because this stuff wasn't incentivized, but it was important to us. So, yeah, it's, it's not window dressing at all, but at a certain level, it becomes not understood in a way where it can be like window dressing.
1: What are some of the solutions? Are there ways in which we can design these systems or these, these systems can be retrofitted to be yeah. much fairer?
4: There's two things that I think for most people outside of tech, it's so obvious that it's strange that it's not a norm. But for people inside tech, for some reason, it's like a crazy idea. So the first one is documentation. (laughs) Believe it or not, there are no norms around documentation of machine learning models or AI systems. So, you know, with food, you tend to have things like nutrition labels. With hardware, you tend to have like data sheet specs. You know, I think people are used to getting things and having a document that comes with it that sort of talks about what it is and warnings and directions for use or whatever. But that's not at all a thing that happens in machine learning, you know, in part reflecting this idea that you have to move very fast and not think with foresight. And so it's a really hard cultural change to get people to develop standards of documentation. But once we can get that becoming a norm, then as people use systems, they can understand what the potential risks are, what sort of situations the system will work well on versus not well on. There's a lot of misunderstanding right now. And a lot of the issues with things like false arrests come from police departments having a lack of understanding of how these systems work because there just is not... The relevant documentation for it at all and the second one is around evaluation so the current norm to evaluate something is what i would call aggregate evaluation you have a score like accuracy which tells you how well the system does but you can do something called disaggregated evaluation, which is breaking up your evaluation data set into different subgroups. So like across different ethnicities or ages or school levels or whatever it is, and looking at the model performance across these different subgroups and ensuring that, you know, the target metrics are performing relatively equally across the different subgroups. And again, I think this is something that's like fairly obvious, like, you know, evaluated in a bunch of different contexts and make sure that it works well in all of them or, you know, with a bunch of different people and make sure it works well. But again, it's just not a cultural norm. So this idea of disaggregated as opposed to aggregated evaluation is another kind of crazy idea that I think outside of AI people are sort of like, Why aren't you doing that again? So those are, I think, the two sort of lowest hanging fruits right now.
1: And they both come back, in a sense, to transparency, don't they?
4: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, transparency leads to accountability. So, you know, when you're providing information about a system, you, the person providing that information or the organization providing that information is now sort of making a contract with you, the user, about what can be expected from the system. So if something goes wrong, you sort of know where it comes from. You can hold the organization accountable to what it says transparently, essentially. You know, it also incentivizes good practices, right? Like you are much less likely to put out a system that performs horribly on black faces, but really well on white faces if you have to show the disaggregated results. (laughs) You can release really horribly biased things if there's no you know, norm of documentation or disaggregated evaluation. But as soon as you have to start showing that, now you're going to be very careful about releasing models until they work relatively well across the board.
1: If tech management is still largely resistant to improving the ethics of the products that they have, what's going to motivate them ultimately to strive for fairer AI, for fairer interactions online?
4: So my view on this has changed a lot in the past few years. I would say two years ago, I was pretty optimistic that looking at the longer term would be itself the incentive. So society is changing and tech is evolving. And so sort of looking at the long term human impact would be itself a way to incentivize appropriate modernization. I would say within the past year, I've become much more dark and pessimistic and I'm starting to side with a group of academics in the ethical space that sort of says the only way to really force change is by a litigation. And now that I'm sort of seeing and understanding more about litigation with all these different companies and how much they are dealing with fighting against lawsuits and making really crazy claims, it becomes more and more clear to me that they're more interested in trying to hide liability than doing the right thing, unless they're within a governing sort of situation, a, a law sort of situation. So cynically, I think it has to happen through litigation and you know, governmental changes, regulations and norms.
1: Computer scientist Dr Margaret Mitchell, who's now with the company Hugging Face. And that's Future Tense for another week. Thanks to my colleague and co-producer, Karin Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers.
3: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC
1: Listen app.